Hi, folks. This is Jason Crane. As you know, if you've been listening over the last several weeks, I am riding my bike in the Lance Armstrong Foundation's Live Strong Challenge Ride in Philadelphia at the end of this month on August 23rd. The ride is a a fundraising ride to raise money to help uh, fight cancer through research and also to help families who are dealing with cancer, uh, as my family has been many times and is right now. Uh, I would like your help, and you don't just have to do it out of a, a sense of altruism, although that's always good. You also can win cool prizes. Here's just a, a small list of what some of the prizes are. I've got uh, tickets to see uh, Kenny Barron and Mulgrew Miller, along with uh, in a duet performance. Also, you'll see the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, and you'll see vocalist Stephen Santoro, all that in a beautiful Tanglewood over Labor Day weekend in western Massachusetts, an easy drive from New York, uh, Boston, any of those cool places. I've also got tickets to see uh, Dave Brubeck in the same part of the country in October. I've got autographed CDs from Patty Wicks, Joe Laurie, Mike Melito, Marilyn Crispell, many, many more. Uh, I've got LP reissues of classic jazz recordings. I've got a huge, like, grab box full of CDs from uh, the great folks at Braithwaite and Katz, uh, who are music promoters, excellent music promoters, and have donated this enormous box full of CDs that I'm just going to send out as one big box. Who knows what's in there, but it's all good. And this is how you get involved. You donate $5, and that gets you one raffle ticket. And for every 5 bucks you donate, well, all of which, I should mention, goes to fight cancer, for every 5 bucks you donate, you get another ticket. And here's where you do it. Just go to thejazzsession.com, thejazzsession.com. That's the show's website. And on the left side, you'll see Big as Life, a huge Lance Armstrong Foundation pick-a-fight banner. And you'll also see a scrolling tally of all the people who have donated so far with a donate button under it. You can click on any of that stuff, and it'll take you where you need to go to donate. You can do it uh, safely and securely online, and you're helping to fight cancer and getting a chance to win cool prizes. The winners will be announced on the August 31st show. Uh, So make sure to tune in, although even if you don't tune in, of course, I'll notify you. So thanks very much for your help. Uh, This is uh, very important to me, and uh, I'm sure it's important to many of you, too. Uh, Thanks again, and now, on with the show. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is Carl Allen. He and Rodney Whitaker have a new record called Work to Do on the Mac Avenue record label. Here's the title track.
Well, after uh, I don't know how many years it's been and many hundreds of interviews, uh, we've, we've done a jazz session first. This is the first jazz interview I've ever conducted in my parents' dining room. So uh, hey. I'm happy you were here for the, I feel special. <laughs> the inaugural <laughs> moment here. My guest is Carl Allen. Uh, he's been on more than 150 albums. He started his own companies. Uh, he's played with everyone that there is to play with. And uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here, here, of all places. Thank you. So um, we're talking about uh, the Mac Avenue record called Work to Do, uh, second that you and Rodney Whitaker have released together on this label. Uh, the record just cooks from start to finish. Thank you. And uh, I want to start um, right off talking about the second track on the album, which is called Speak to My Heart, mm-hmm. and hope that you would just tell us a little bit about how that track came on this album because it's a real standout. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know. Rodney chose that one, and it's um, it's a tune that was made famous by uh, Billy Preston and Saida Garrett. But it, it uh, you know, Rodney and I have always had this thing of of kind of, if you will, globalizing the music in a sense that we we both come up playing in church, and so for us. The music that we've been known for playing in terms of the straight ahead has come out of our early experiences. And so this tune, Speak to My Heart, is is a tune that, that was most recently popularized by Donnie McClurkin. And uh, it was just something that, that Rodney said, man, I've been hearing this tune. And on the first record we did, we did We Fall Down, which is Donnie McClurkin. He said, I got this other Donnie McClurkin tune, I would like to try it. I said, Okay, but it it uh, it kind of went with the theme of what we were trying to get to in terms of, you know, man, it's been <laughs> Rodney jokes about how, you know, the first record when we had during the previous administration it was called Get Ready, <laughs> and so now we got a new administration is about work to do. <laughs> but this 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 particular track just kind of goes with the the overall theme of just. You know, let's try to put some craziness behind us. And it's really about coming into a place of peace and love and support for one another and each and everyone's endeavors. And, and uh, But that title, you know, Speak to My Heart, is just... Rodney said he would put this on in the morning sometimes when he'd be in his office and crying, <laughs> you know. So, But uh, that's how it came about. Rodney, Rodney brought it in, and, and, you know, and I was all for it. Yeah. 
you guys certainly have straight ahead credentials as much as you'll ever need. Mm -hmm. But one of the cool things I like about these two projects is you're not afraid to put other kinds of music. And I mean, the music that you like and you know, and that's part of who you are too, besides just the straight ahead stuff. Is that part of the philosophy kind of underlying this partnership? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because when we did the first record, from the time that we started talking about doing a project together, before we were even signed, uh, up until going through being signed, picking musicians, getting the, re- uh, the dates down uh, to record, the night before the first rehearsal, up until, I mean, we're talking two and a half years, we kept talking about we need to talk about the music. We kept saying, you know, we would have a conversation and said, so listen, man, we need to kind of figure out what we would like to do. Yeah, okay, yeah, next time we talk, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. And here we were the night before the first rehearsal, and I said, Rodney, listen, man, you realize we haven't talked about any music. He said, yeah, I've been thinking about that. He said, well, what do you got? I said, well, man, I got a couple of tunes. I said, what do you got? He says, well, I got a couple of tunes. I said, well, let's just bring in some music and let's see what happens, you know? We already knew the instrumentation, so we kind of wrote for that instrumentation. And about an hour and a half into the first rehearsal of having gone through two or three tunes, we just looked at each other and started laughing because it felt so natural and so organic that we didn't talk about what we had, but conceptually everything worked. Not only it worked with the musicians, but it worked as a total package in terms of the music. And uh, but saying that to say that, you know, with this second record, um, one of the things that our manager was 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 talking to us about was looking at from a fan base what was it that people really gravitated towards from the first record, and part of that was the Motown theme and also the gospel thing, which for us was just kind of natural, particularly Rodney being from Detroit. And I'm being from the jazz capital of the world, which is Milwaukee, Wisconsin. (laughs) But we just looked at how can we just continue to do what we've done. We know that quite often when people do their second record, it's like a huge departure from the previous record. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that when you look at what your following is and trying to feed into that in a creative and positive manner. So it wasn't about... You know, let's just try to prove how many different things that we could do. It was just kind of more of the same, if you will. It's funny to hear you talk that way because if someone didn't know anything about you, they could think we're talking about literally your second record. And we're talking about like your 162nd record or whatever it is. So you're talking very much like a guy kind of striking out kind of on some fresh ground. Is that how it feels? Well, it it feels fresh because um, it was it's another period in my life where. Uh, I think because of personal maturations and, and personal things that I've kind of grown through, I'm at a point in my life where I don't really feel like I have to prove anything to anybody. You know what I mean? You know, in my previous recordings and, and outings, uh, particularly with Atlantic, I kind of felt like, okay, you know, I have to prove that I can do this, I have to prove that I can do that. And, and, you know, I got to thinking after a while, I said, man, I've been very blessed to have played with some great people from Freddie Hubbard and Jackie McLean, and the list goes on and on. And I've never heard them talk about needing to prove themselves. It's just about let me just 
put out something that I feel good about. That I, and and here's the thing that Rodney and I'm talking about that we can just be honest about. You don't want to record something that you don't want to play in front of people, you know, because it's like that to me is really the 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 uh, the definition of selling out. And it was just about man, this is who I am, you know. And if the jazz police want to come after me for playing a backbeat, that's okay. They can. <laughs> I'll tell them where I live, you know. But you know, like. I've always enjoyed different grooves. I've always do enjoyed different sounds. You know, like on a couple of tracks, I'm using like uh, three snare drums, actually. I'm using a 6x10 on my left, and of course my main 5x14. And then I have this other drum called a ballad snare, which is a really a floor tom with snares on it. And I've always just enjoyed exploring different textures and, and different colors. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm 48, man. I'm not about to apologize for what I hear, <laughs> you know. How did you guys decide who you were going to surround yourselves with on this project? You obviously had the rhythm core. How did you pick everybody else? Well, it's interesting. Rodney, um, Rodney Jones, of course, was on, the, was on the first record. And, uh, man, he's such a chameleon of a musician in terms of the things that he can do and the directions he can go. And, um, and Rob Robinson, the organist, was also on the first record. We wanted to have him as a different color um, for some different types of tunes. And um, so the other, some of the other musicians had to do with some of the previous musicians from the first record not being available. But with, with the piano chair, George had been doing some gigs with us, George Colligan, so we, it only made sense to use George. And um, it was a, kind of a scheduling thing with... with um, with Steve Wilson and Vince and I, Vince Heron and I had played together for years, uh, so we had talked about, uh, you know, using him. And with Kurt Whalem, uh, it's interesting because I met Kurt a couple of years ago at a jazz festival in Utah, of all places. And it was one of these festivals where they just, it was just had all these people playing with other people, so none of us had bands there, bands there. So um, you know, Kurt and I were talking, and he said, "Man." I heard a tune of yours, man, that I, I, I like, man. I said, really, what, what tune is that? A Lusha Walk, a Lusha's Walk. He's talking about Lachey's Walk, which is from the first record, which I had written for my wife. And so he said, um, that's really something. I said, man, I said, well, Kurt, we, we should do something sometime. He said, man, I would love to, man, I would love to. He said, man, you know, I get kind of pigeonholed and do an R&B thing. I love it, but I love Straight Ahead, too. I said, man, that's great. So... This was two years or so before we recorded this. And so as we were talking about this record, Rodney and I were talking about the sound that we were trying to get to. And I said, I said, man, really, for some of these tunes, the only person I can hear who has the sound with it being authentic without having to describe anything is Kurt Whalen. And he said, well, yeah. He said, you think he'd do it? I said, well, man, I don't know. I said, I'll call him. But I remember he said he wants to do some stuff. And, man, I called him, and he was like, yes. Whatever you need me to do, Carl. He was beautiful. But, but his whole vibe and his whole spirit was just about, I love to be a part of it, and I appreciate you guys calling me. And, and it, was, it was really, really. So quite often, well, to answer your question, quite often who we choose to be a part of the project has as much to do with the person, uh, who they are, uh, more so than even the music. Hey. 
like I said, I'm I'm just at a point where, you know, I'm back to why did I start playing music, which is for the enjoyment. And if I can't have fun doing it, man, I might as well not do it. So I want to have fun. I want to enjoy myself. And I think that the spirit of the individuals really has an effect on the spirit of the music. And the result of that, I think people feel that. You know, if you're in a studio and you're making music with people who feel good about each other and they love each other and they support the endeavor, I think the music is going to come out in such a way where people feel it. You know, that's just my opinion, but that's that's what I feel. And uh, and the feeling in the studio was just really, really just great, man. And then the other guys on the record, uh, Brandon Lee was a student of mine at Juilliard. And... Uh, and so, you know, initially we were just thinking there would just be some background parts for, for he and for Vincent uh, Chancellor uh, for trombone, but it was like, man, okay, when they playing this great, how are you not going to give them solos, you know? So, but I just told them they just couldn't ask for any more money. <laughs> <laughs> were there some, uh, are there some moments on this record that surprised you in the studio, things that happened that you thought, wow, that's just it really was how I envisioned it, or it wasn't how I envisioned it, but it's it's great. Well, I, yeah, you know, um, uh, two tunes that I wrote really kind of surprised me. One was Giving Thanks, because uh, I had an idea of, of um, a harmonic thing that I wanted to do that I had. Prior to, a week prior to going into the studio, I was in South Africa. And um, I wrote two tunes, basically, about that experience, Giving Thanks and Grahamstown. But um, I remember working on, I had some ideas that I was working on in terms of just some piano voicings and some other things, and I had an idea for a groove. And, and I could never really figure out what groove to put on this. So, I mean, we rehearsed it, but it was kind of like, man, that ain't, nah, nah. So it, it got to a point to where I was just, we were just going to scrap it. And then Kurt, Kurt said, and he said, no, man, you got something here. He said, Let, let's try something. And he, we changed a couple of things in the bridge and extended the section. And, and um, you know, I realized that the vibe that I was hearing was very much the drums being in the background as opposed to a pulse-driven thing, more of like kind of colors. But the idea of the tune was for it to really be like a prayer. And... Um, and really to kind of feature the piano and the saxophone. So um, that surprised me. That surprised me. And also, the tune Grahamstown, uh, I often say that, you know, those weird cluster chords really came from some kids that I heard singing on the street in South Africa. I was outside of the hotel waiting for my pickup to go to a performance. There were about 10, 12 kids coming up the street just playing and joking like kids do, jumping around and laughing and singing. And I don't know what they were singing, but they were singing. I had been messing with these, with these kind of cluster chords, but they were singing those cluster chords. And I was like, what? <laughs> you guys been in my room listening to my, you know, my stuff? So, but listening to them, I said, man. And I just kind of stood there and followed them with my eyes for like a block. And I was just mesmerized. And to them, it was, it was probably just child's play. They probably even realized how hip it was as they were singing. But um, I, I think 
with these musicians after I had explained to them what this tune was about. I think it really surprised me that they captured in their performance what I was hearing and seeing at that time when I was in Grahamstown, South Africa. The story about giving thanks makes it sound like the studio experience was very collaborative. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's really how Rodney and I kind of run this this band and that, you know, we're the leaders, but we want people in the band who are going to contribute. And it's not a democ- it's not an autocracy. It's not about you just do as I say. I mean, I when I call, you know, George Colligan or I call Vince Herring or Rodney Jones, it's because I want them to do them, do what they do, and to give them that creative freedom. And um, so it is very much a collaborative thing. I mean, for instance, there was one tune where we had guitar, and Rodney was like, man, I don't think you guys need me on this. And not that he was going home. He said, man, I just think it's beautiful what you guys have without the guitar. And I appreciate that kind of input. You know, it wasn't about I need to be on every tune. It was just about let's let's do what works for the music. Uh, I mentioned to you off the air that I uh, talked with Christian McBride uh, last week, mm-hmm. and I think we spent probably a third of the interview talking about you. And uh, one of the things that, that he said and that he really uh, thanked you for was that when he was you know kind of young and untested, you took him under your wing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you still see that as part of your role in this music. Is that still a, a function you, you fill? I mean, I appreciate McBride saying it. I mean, McBride has always been very mature, you know, and it's interesting because I always see him as like my little brother, and he's, he's 36 years old, you know. But um, great person, man. I love him like a brother. But I, I, I do kind of see that as part of my responsibility, and part of that came from Art Blakey. You know, I got my first record deal in 1987 from a gentleman in Japan who I still produce records for who came to me after a concert my very first time in Japan with Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison he came to me after a concert in Tokyo this gentleman's name Makoto Kimada and he introduced himself he gave me his card he said I just saw Art Blakey and Art Blakey says I should give you a record deal I said really? he says he said that you or probably the next guy to kind of carry on in his spirit in terms of trying to help the young musicians, and somebody needs to do that. Hart was my hero. So when he said that, I was like, man. But that really was kind of the impetus behind my production company, and that, you know, producing people like Roy Hargrove, Nicholas Payton, Cyrus Chestnut, young guys who had not been tested, but you saw potential. So that's kind of been a thing for me, um, not that I'm consciously always seeking out the, the young guys, but just trying to help people, you know, get to to help fulfill their vision. I mean, it's, this is a tough business, you know, and um, I've never been under the mindset that, you know, I had it rough, so you should have it rough too. You know, if there's something I can do to make it easier for you, I'm I'm fine with that because everybody's going to have their own journey they have to go through. The other thing that uh, Christian said that really struck me, uh, I asked him whether he thought he had come full circle because now he had, like, on his new record, uh, that Warren Wolf Jr. is on there, mm-hmm. who had been a, a student of his. Mm-hmm. And he said yes. He said he felt, you know, kind of like that it had been done to him for him mm-hmm. uh, and that it was his responsibility to pass it on. And so it seems like your attitude is very much kind of a pay it forward. I mean, so it's 
you know, from Art Blakey to Carl Allen to Christian McBride, now to Warren Wolf, and probably will continue, which seems yeah. like the best thing for this music. Yeah, I, I, I believe in that, man, because I believe that uh, this music belongs to everyone. Um, I believe that we all, everyone walking the face of the earth, everyone breathing, has a gift, sometimes more than one gift. And I think part of what we're to do is to find out what that is. And sometimes that gift is helping other people shine. And sometimes part of that is, you know, being okay with the attention not being on you. You know, I'll tell you, man, um, I hesitate sometimes in saying this publicly because I don't want to embarrass him. But I've told him on many occasions, talking about Christian, how proud I am of him to see how he's grown up as a man, because that was the thing that Art Blakey was about. He said, I can, you know, when you come in my band, you're going to leave as a better musician and you're going to be a man. And that means you're going to be responsible, you're going to take care of your business and do what you need to take care of. None of this knucklehead stuff, you know. And man, McBride, man, he's just, he's really just, I'm just really proud of him, man. He's done such a wonderful job just as a, as a person. You know, you know everybody knows musically he's a genius as far as I'm concerned. But uh, in terms of the clarity of vision that he has for his career and for his life and how creative he is, not only musically, but even what he's doing with, say, his deal with Mac Avenue, of doing these conversations with Christian where he's doing 20 solo tracks on all these different people to commemorate 20 years in the business. I thought that was very creative. That was very hip. And so I think it's, it's really incumbent upon us to support each other and to, it's really no time to be envious of anybody. You know what I mean? Because then, the, when, to, for me, when that comes into the fold, it's now competition. If it's competition, it's like sports. It's not music. That's not what this music is about. This music is about, you know, Art used to say that music is supposed to wash away the dust of everyday life. And so... This is really what we're supposed to do. We're really supposed to usher in situations and people into other things, you know, and that's really what it's about for me.
is it about Rodney that makes him such a good partner for you musically? Well, you know, it's so funny because, um, you know, Rodney and I have been playing together, oh man, 20-something years, and it started with Terrence and Donald, you know. But, um, you know, it's kind of like musically speaking, he finishes my sentences and vice versa. And uh, philosophically, we see music and life in a very similar fashion. We both grew up in similar type households, both grew up in the Midwest, or what he likes to call up south. And uh, <laughs> both grew up playing in church, both grew up with, you know, like in somewhat large families. But we see, we, we kind of approach music from like a blue collar perspective that you gotta work, man. And you, when you play, you, you have to give everything that you have to the people who are there, whether it's one person or no one there or 6,000 people, it doesn't matter. And that's kind of how we came up in terms of just, just how we approach playing this music and also about reaching out to people, you know. So um, I think that makes a, a good fit for us, you know. We, you know, it's interesting because we don't, you know, sometimes there are a lot of, tumultuous moments in co-leaderships. We don't argue, we don't fuss, it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Because, you know, the bass and drums is the most important relationship in the band. So if we're arguing, we're fussing and fighting, even if it's not verbally, even if it's musically, man, the rest of the band, they're going to have a hard time. So we get along great, man. It just works. You're so involved uh, in education. Mm-hmm. and uh, Can you talk a little bit about what you think kind of the role of the academy, whatever that means, but the kind of the formal educational system is in jazz? Well, it's interesting, um, because I, this is a conversation I've been having quite a bit lately. In fact, uh, in less than eight hours, I'll be on a plane on my way to some jazz conference in West Virginia. But, uh, uh, you know, when we came up, the bandstand was where you got your stripes. You know, I joined Freddie Hubbard my senior year of college, and, and then the first three, four months, I learned more than I had in the previous three years because it was real-life experience. Um, one of the challenges that the younger generations of musicians come in and have is that there aren't any bands. So that apprenticeship that we got, playing with older people, playing their music, having to deal with their rules on the bandstand and off the bandstand just doesn't exist the way that it did before. And I think it's, 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 uh, it's creating a hole in that a lot of people, by default in some situations, are becoming band leaders that are, haven't been led by anyone. You know, So it's like, how are you going to lead a band? You haven't led it. Hey, you, you've never been a side man. But I think what jazz education now has, has done has kind of replaced, uh, to a degree, not completely, the role of the bandstand in the sense that a lot of those musicians who are not uh, out, who are guys who used to be out here playing all the time with Art Blake. I mean, I think about Bobby Watson, University at uh, University of Missouri in Kansas City. I think about... Um, you know, a lot of guys, you know, Rodney at Michigan State, who, who were on the road for years and years and years with a lot of guys who are now running programs or teaching universities. Well, we're able to bring our life experience to, to these students because my generation, maybe guys a little younger than me, probably the last have had that experience of playing with people that you read about in the history books. You know, uh, to this day, 
I just get excited when I get a phone call from Benny Golson, you know, and I've been playing with him 20-some years. But, you know, I grew up listening to him, you know. But um, so the role of jazz education is very important because it is, it's, it's really incumbent upon on us to really teach this generation of, music, of, of jazz musicians, the students coming up, about where the music is. And, and, and for me, I'm not such a traditionalist that I believe that you only have to stop at 1962. You know, I believe in meeting people where they are, but it's also important that they understand the tradition. You know, like at Juilliard, where I'm artistic director of jazz studies, and my programming every year, it's always a balance. It's always about, like, for instance, we have uh, Christian, we're doing a concert with Christian and his, big, and his music with the big band, but the first big band concert is music of Count Basie. You know, we do, uh, we'll have a, a concert uh, for the small ensemble called Grits Gravy, uh, Grits Groove and Gravy, where we're kind of looking at the music of Hank Crawford and Jimmy Smith and, you know, and those guys where it's just about some greasy fat backs and swinging. Then we'll do another concert with Branford Marcellus. So we're looking at the tradition, and we're looking at something modern, because part of our job is to prepare these students to be able to get a gig. So if you're only teaching them to just deal with Duke Ellington, as great as Duke is, and there's no gigs out there to play Duke Ellington, then we've done the students a disservice. But at the same time, if we only say, okay, we're just going to start with Jason Moran, then we're still doing them a disservice. So you really have to look at a much wider spectrum. So, but this is why jazz education is so important, and this is the role and the function that, that we play. Um, and I think uh, I don't think there's one model of doing it. I think uh, you know, guys maybe at other institutions are doing a phenomenal job, but they have a different approach. So. Well, I got to say, hearing that in less than eight hours, you have to be on a plane on your way to a conference. I, uh, I'm even more thrilled that you came out. Oh, uh, it's spent my some pleasure time to tonight. be here. It's uh, it's been such a joy talking to you. And it's my pleasure. I feel like we could have a, a ten hour show with uh, with all the stuff that you have to tell people. Well, that's why you have part one. That's part exactly two. right. That's right. Our seventy four part series. With yeah, Carl yeah, Allen. yeah. Well, my guest is Carl Allen. Uh, he and Rodney Whitaker have a, a new album on Mac Ave called Work to Do. And again, just thank you so much uh, for that's coming out and being on the show. Thanks.
That's Carl Allen from his new album with Rodney Whitaker, Work to Do. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed The Jazz Session's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. You'll find more information at the website. Thanks so much for listening. I'm really glad that you were here this week and every week. Please support Live Jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.